already trying to impress you before you've turned the product on with such attention to detail on beautiful packaging. And I talk to other people and I see what they ship their products out in, kind of like, you know, what I call shitty little brown boxes. You could make a branding impression with someone. You could do this, you could do that. And they go, it's just the shipping box, Bernie. And I go, but it's your brand. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, episode 100. Shai and I are celebrating 100 episodes of Business Owners Radio podcast. While investing many hours a week in pre- and post-production time for each episode, we truly enjoy finding and speaking with great business thought leaders and solution providers. We would like to thank our loyal listeners and sponsors for their support and feedback that continues to grow the Business Owners Radio Network. Our returning guest today is Bernard Schroeder, author of his latest best-selling book, Brands and B.S., Excel at the former and avoid the latter, a branding primer for millennial marketers in a digital age. Bernard is the director of the Lavin Entrepreneurship Center for Programs at San Diego State University and oversees all of the center's undergraduate and graduate experimental programs. He is quoted frequently in national media and has spoken at TEDx events. Bernard works with founders and venture capitalists in growth and turnaround opportunities with several companies ranging from $50 million to $350 million. He brings over 20 years of branding, marketing, and entrepreneurial experience, working with major brands both as a senior partner of a global integrated marketing agency and a former chief marketing officer on the client side. Good morning, Bern. Welcome back to Business Owners Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you today. And, you know, I've been reading this book, Brands and I guess we'll call it BS today, (laughs) Excel at the Former and Avoid the Latter. So tell us, you know, this is now your third effort. What inspired you to write this book? This book came out of a meeting I had with one of my mentees, and he had built a company pretty rapidly. I would say in in less than five years, he built it to about 7 million. And we're having a conversation at lunch one day, and he was kind of struggling with a couple strategic issues with larger clients. And I started asking him some questions related to strategy. You know, like, do you really know their market? Are there any marketplace gaps? You know, could you reposition them? Could you create a new category ladder? And he just stared at me and he said, I don't even understand what you're saying. I said, these are all core branding, you know, or aspects of branding strategy. And I was so frustrated walking away from that meeting that I wrote a LinkedIn article that got a ton of reads. It was kind of like an angry beaver mode when I wrote it. <laughs> I got a lot of response. And my basic complaint was that a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of millennials did not understand branding. And when they started to face bigger clients or competition, they didn't know what to do next. And I was just stunned at that, especially you know people who are in marketing. And so several people suggested I should write a book. And eventually I started writing down my thoughts And then I thought I would put everything I'd learned in my 20-year branding and marketing career down into a primer because I hadn't found anything like it exactly in the marketplace where I could give away all the tools and frameworks that I'd learned and took from other people in 20 years. 
Yeah, and I guess a, a really good place to start would be sort of this difference between branding and marketing, since there's this fundamental misunderstanding sometimes about how those two activities are different. You know, this is a tough one because I was in an agency the other day, a digital agency. I had about 30 people in the room. I'd asked the CEO to send the younger people to the meeting. So I'm staring at an audience of 25 to 30 year olds. And I started talking about the difference between branding and marketing. And I said, marketing is everything you see. You know, it's everything you see. It's, it's the ad words. It's the website. It's anything that's physically produced or you can visually see it. I go, the branding is what you're going to create or what your strategy is to create a feeling in a customer. And I mean, these people just stared at me. And so I said, well, let me use this example. You know, Nike uses just do it. But that's not what Nike wants to make you feel. So I started going around the room and saying, when you wear Nike, what do you feel? And you know, a couple of the people in the room said, well, I feel like I'm a champion. I feel like I'm going to perform better. I feel, and I go, well, that's the feeling that Nike wants you to have. So that's the brand feeling. So that's your strategic objective. How do we create this feeling amongst 10 million people, 30 million people, right? And then once we identify that's the feeling we want to create because that makes us unique as Nike, then what marketing do we have to produce to create that feeling? Then they started to get it. But I would say for the most of them, they kind of glazed over. What you made me think about when you talk about that is the different needs and the different buying factors of the emotional, social, and functional aspects of a product or service. And so often, especially if you have a company or a culture that is really born out of product design or service design, where people are really passionate about the service delivery, they tend to focus a lot on functional. But as we all know, that's actually a much smaller part of why people buy than I think a lot of folks realize. You know... It's interesting because another example I used was the water aisle, you know, at any store and that it's now a $15 billion aisle. I'm talking about water and plastic bottles. And we talked about, I mean, do you care about water? And everybody has their own feeling about certain waters, right? And then I used the example of vitamin water, you know, to come in the space, create something new and make people feel that they were getting something they didn't get enough of, which was vitamins, right? And I go, that's not an accident. That was done very, very strategically. I know the people that did that. They wanted to go into the water aisle, but they didn't have something better than a commodity product. And you really don't want a commodity product in an aisle or for any reason. Because once you enter into a commodity product zone, then ultimately it will become a battle of price. And I call it the race to the bottom. You know, you just keep lowering your price and they lower their price. I don't care if you're a neighborhood restaurant. I don't care if you're a dry cleaner. You got to make people feel that there's something you're doing, you know, at your place of business or in your product that they can't exactly get anywhere else. And that feeling lines up with a value that the customer values, not you. This is the toughest part that, you know, some people can't understand. They want to believe that they can just implant a chip in the customer's mind and get them to do what they want. And I said, you can't do that. You've got to try to create a set of messages that create that feeling. And that's where most people fall down because that takes very strategic thinking and they just want to produce marketing. Yeah. It's almost like understanding enough about what your customers want and then creating the messaging that reminds them that that's what they want. Exactly. I mean, when BMW says, you know, the ultimate driving machine, 
Isn't that what we want? <laughs> That's definitely what their customers and want. They don't say, you know, we're, the, we're engineered to do this, we're this. They're just like, no, what we want you to feel when you're in that vehicle is the ultimate driving machine. So what does the person who drives the ultimate driving machine believe he's in? He believes he's in a car that could be a race car. He believes he's in a car that is second to none. And so that's the feeling that BMW has created over time. In that space, it's gotten very competitive because Audi has come in and Porsche has amped up their game. And so it's become very, very competitive. But they're all trying to create that unique feeling. And Bern, they're really developing almost a club or an association of membership. Well, the ultimate goal is, and especially if you're a small business owner, think about what you want people to say in your city or in your neighborhood about you that's really valuable to the customer. And that's what you want to go after because in a sea of commodity products, especially if you're a small company, you don't have a lot of money for marketing. So your best marketing is going to be some other customer who says something to someone else and says, no, no, you should shop at that market. No, no, you should go to that restaurant. No, no, you should go to that dry cleaner. No, no, you should go to that store. And they're your best advocates. And this whole idea that you create advocates from your business, people that buy from you and can talk to other people, I got to tell you, at a small business level, that is mission critical. And it also brings up that real challenge of really knowing their client or knowing their target audience they're going after and investing. I find that they're almost resistant to do that. They're afraid of what they might find. What are your thoughts? You know, I, th I think it just requires a little bit of effort and a little bit of, you know, some type of a framework or tool. I mean, if you think about how the most sophisticated marketers segment customers and cities and markets, you can teach or a small business owner can learn to look at the five-mile radius of their market or the 10-mile radius or you know, whoever their key competitors are online and say, who are the core customers? Who are the future customers? Who are the laggards, the people that come a little bit later? And who are the core influencers? You know, So that as I move to grow my business, let's say I'm a dry cleaner and I want to move away from chemicals and I want to move to some kind of sustainable or organic cleaning process. I've got to say, okay, my current customer base has never had a complaint about me using chemicals, but my future customer base could be millennials, could be somebody else. They're really into that. So where am I located? Is my neighborhood changing? Are the millennials moving in? You know, are the boomers moving out? What's going on? And if you pay attention to what's going on in what I call your radius, you can start to see the trends and the shifts that are occurring. And then you have to look at those trends and shifts and say, how will this affect my business? And if it affects my business negatively, then I've got to change the way I do business or I'm going to go out of business. Burn in the branding side of the equation, I'm finding so many business owners are realizing that the brand is far more than on the client side. It also really has a major impact inside the business and is very critical. What are you seeing? You know, it's funny. I was at a sporting goods store yesterday and I walked in and, you know, there was a college kid up at the front. And I was curious as to what he would say to me. The store was kind of empty. I got there early. And he did a great job of greeting me, asking me if I needed any help. And then when I went back up to the counter, he asked me if everything was okay. And then there was an issue on the price of what I bought. He said, let me double check. And he found out there was a cheaper price. And, and I thought to myself, somebody's really trained this kid well. He couldn't have been more than 21 or 22. And he was a really good representative for this big multi-billion dollar chain, right? And your employees are your ambassadors. 
and so are your vendors. And so if you're not treating your vendors well, if you're not absolutely convincing and having your employees feel like they're part of what they're doing, everyone can see that. I've seen more businesses go south when the employees decide this place sucks, the owners don't care, I don't really care to be here, and customers pick up on that vibe. And you insult a customer once or twice. I don't care how much they love your business. They're going to go somewhere else. Oh, yeah. And they talk, too. (laughs) And now the speed of talk is faster than we could have ever imagined years ago. Yeah. Social media is a double-edged sword. You can say that you don't want to participate in social media, but you really have no choice. You can say you don't want to participate in reviews, but you have no choice. So you have to, instead of saying these things are kind of a pain in the butt, you got to take them on and turn them into tiny little pluses for you so that your little business can get every advantage it's possible. I find that people who you know avoid these kind of areas are going to run into problems simply because one or two customer complaints left untouched can create a huge problem. Yeah, and small right. business owners might say, well, I don't have time to do that. Well, you have time to hire a high school intern and train them. They're not going to cost you very much and it's going to help your business. Yeah, because there's this digital trail, right? And you never know which piece is going to float to the surface or get attention. And people tend to notice negative stuff a lot more than positive. Yeah, that's a cultural thing. That's pretty fascinating. When we're satisfied, we tell five people. When we're completely dissatisfied, we tell 10. Anybody that's ever been in a workplace knows that, right? (laughs) When people are unhappy, they talk, you know? I mean, it's just, it's like you said, it's what we do as human beings. And so now it's just the... You know, that talk moves so quickly through the ether and it just stays there. That trace stays there. And so that risk is something you really have to manage and manage it proactively. Well, this is why if I'm a small business owner, taking it back to branding, on the day that I hire an employee, I'm going to tell them what our brand is all about. You know, this is our brand persona. We're helpful. We're smart. We're this, we're that. This is how we talk to customers. We're approachable. We listen. I mean, without getting into a deep branding project or telling small business owners that they can't do this, I want every single employee that works for me to understand how we walk and talk as it relates to both the business and the customers. If you hire someone and say, this is how you work the register, this is how you clock in and clock out, and they don't get any overall training on who the business is and how the businesses walks and talks, that's a huge problem. As a small business owner, I'm making sure that everybody understands who I am and what I stand for. And if people say, well, I don't have time for that, you'll have time for it when your company goes out of business because (laughs) you simply didn't care, right? You'll have plenty of time to contemplate it for your next go. (laughs) Exactly. You know, it reminds me of this great section you have when you're doing sort of this general overview about branding in the book and you talk about these different misconceptions. And as you say here, Bern, your customers are ultimately the ones who define your brand. It's not you. You can decide what you want it to be, but the truth is what they receive and their perception that they take away. Well, and for a lot of people, this notion of customers decide what the brand is, they can't get their arms around that. The only thing I would say to that is, Apple doesn't take out full page ads saying this, we're going to do marketing that makes you love your iPhone. They don't do that. They try to understand what you're going to try to do with your iPhone. And then they try to make that indispensable to you. So that when I walk up to a student in my class and take their iPhone off the desk 
and I look at them and I say, if you were talking to your iPhone today and it was a person, what would you say to it? And they say, I love my iPhone. And I sit there and I go, you love glass, plastic, screws, and software. And, and they just start to get a little embarrassed. But they actually love their iPhone. It's kind of crazy. And the reason they love their iPhone is what it allows them to do and what it makes them feel right at the same time. And so, again, Apple has never taken out an ad saying, you need to love your iPhone. What do they want 100 million people to say? I love my iPhone. And so they put the kind of marketing out there. They put the kind of features in the product that when everything is combined, including the way they wrap their products in very beautiful packaging. I mean, when you open up a product box from Apple, that is almost an adventure. It's almost as if you're opening something from Tiffany. You know, <laughs> the way they design the packaging is so well thought out because they're already trying to impress you before you've turned the product on with such attention to detail on beautiful packaging. And I talk to other people and I see what they ship their products out in kind of like, you know, what I call shitty little brown boxes. And <laughs> yep. go, wow, you, should, you know, you, you could make a branding impression with someone. You could do this, you could do that. And they go, it's just the shipping box, Bernie. And I go, but it's your brand. And they go, it's just the shipping box. And I go, okay. Okay. Yeah. That emotional side, when you have great products and great packaging and great delivery and great support, there's an emotional gain there that they just can't seem to measure or get their arms around. And it ends up being the most powerful indicator and driver of purchasing behavior. It's fascinating to me. I mean, I'm not sitting here saying that someone who listens to this podcast needs to completely re-engineer their business. But I tell you one thing you should do. Step back from your business for a few hours and just start to analyze what promise you're making the customer and whether or not you're delivering on that promise. And if you're not delivering on that promise, over time, you will start to compete on price. And if you're competing on price, that means you have a commodity. And if you have a commodity, like I said before, it's a race to the bottom. I mean, I don't go to the store and agonize over what toilet paper to buy. When I get, <laughs> when I get to the cereal aisle, I do agonize a little bit because Kashi and other brands have made an impression on me that healthy, natural, organic cereal is better for my body than other cereal. So I, I'm evaluating differently when I look at cereal versus toilet paper. And that was done on purpose. So let's talk about this is such an important point, And I'd like you to go a little deeper here, right? So you talk about something called the brand gap. And in coaching, we talk a lot about helping leaders understand their blind spots, right? How do you understand how you're being perceived by others and how that may limit your ability to perform at a high level? And so how does a business owner step out of their business and how do they shine light on those blind spots? Because they're going to have those same challenges that any leader does, you know, trying to see it through their customer's eyes. You know, you're going to think this is such a simple solution. It doesn't even make sense. All my life when I was in marketing, I used to go touch customers. I mean, not literally, but I used to just stand in the grocery store aisle when I was working, doing marketing for Kellogg's. And I would try to watch what people would do when making a decision about Kellogg's. I used to visit dealerships when I was doing work for Mercedes. And I used to just watch. And every now and then I would talk to customers. If I owned a small business today, 
I would take time out of my day one day and I would try to talk to different customers, customers that perhaps came in for the first time or bought something from me the first time, you know, regular customers. And I would start to ask them, why do you come here? Why are you buying this from me? What is it about what I'm selling to you you find valuable? I've always believed in customer truth. You know, I, I reference it almost in every book I've written. Most people do not understand customer truth. Customer truth is not customers telling you what you want to hear, and it's not you listening to what you want to hear. But it's really listening to what customers are saying. In other words, if I say to you, your store's fine, your product's fine, if that's all I'm saying, what I'm really saying is, I don't mean to be rude, but your product kind of sucks. And so you need to be listening to customers. You can't make every decision based on what customers say, but it starts to develop a trend line. In other words, if you say to customers, what future services should I offer at my store? They might not know. They might know. They might not know. But I'm going to ask that question, and then I'm going to look at my neighborhood. I'm going to correlate it with trends. I'm going to look at my competition. I mean, I'm going to bring in the other factors that are influencing my business. But that whole thing of finding customer truth I find most business owners don't do that. They don't talk to customers and want to get feedback because their fear is they might get negative feedback. Human nature. It's the same fear in coaching. Yeah. And, and actually, what have research shown us time and time again that negative feedback can be converted and that customer will have a more positive feeling about the brand because you addressed a negative. And if one customer has negative, trust me, if you see a correlation of negative feedbacks and you talk to four, five, six people, that's probably affecting quite a few more customers. So I would be zealous about talking to customers in any which way possible. The other thing I would also do if I was a small business owner is I would literally walk into or engage with my competitors and act as a customer and see how they treated me. Because I want to understand, how does my competitor treat their customers? Maybe I can glean some insights there. Yeah, I think that's so critical. And it, and it goes back to what you were saying about culture. We were talking earlier. You have to create a culture that values the truth, that actively seeks the truth and rewards the truth when it's brought to the table. And if you do that and you get people really focused on observing what's happening with the customers, that's a big step into making sure that that brand promise is holding up. I've always loved the Patagonia brand. It's an outdoor clothing brand. And I have bought their gear and it's been around 20 years. The stuff is almost indestructible. So about six months ago, Patagonia has what they call kind of branded stores. Not many of them. I'd say 10 or 12 in the United States. We happen to have one here in San Diego. So I walked into this branded store and I'd been buying Patagonia mostly online, to be honest with you, but I knew there was a sale coming up. I wanted to see the certain clothing, you know, face to face. So I walked into the store and I got to be honest with you, the way that those employees interfaced with me was blow away. You know, everybody that's first of all in the Patagonia store looks like they are living the brand of Patagonia. They look like they're hikers. They look like they're climbers. They look like they're active. And so when someone comes up to me and says, why are you in the store today? I thought to myself, wow, what a great question. Because you know, when you ask a question, can I help you? It's very easy to say no. Someone has coached them to ask open-ended questions like, why are you in the store today? And I was like, oh, I saw this new product and I wanted to actually see it. And he was like, oh, great. For what use are you looking to da-da-da? And he's saying this to me as we're walking toward the display. And I thought to myself, wow, I feel like right now I am 
touching the Patagonia brand through these people that are in the store. So knowledgeable, so into the product, so into helping, but doing it in such a sincere way. And it's just a store. But it convinced me that my decision in buying Patagonia gear was absolutely reinforced. And I had a great experience in the store. It lived up to the clothing. And here I am in a store where that certainly could be ruined and it's actually enhanced. So somebody has done a hell of a job training these people to be part of the brand. Yeah, there's so many clues too for a small business owner, regardless of what business you're in, of these really iconic brands that do it well if you just go out and observe. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. Bern, how do we carry through that same emotion and reflection of a business and its touch and feel into the digital side of the world? You know, one of the things that we did when we did work with Amazon is we knew that people would potentially, you know, this was 95, we knew that people would potentially never meet someone from Amazon. And at the time, Amazon wasn't making any of their own products and they weren't going to sell books for less. I mean, talk about how does this going to work again? I can see a Barnes and Noble outside my window. I mean, why can't I just walk over there and get my book? And so we tried to step back and say, well, how do we have to behave on our website in order to make people feel that Amazon isn't an unknown store, but an entity that wants to help you? And so eventually we decided every brand has a persona and a persona is a reflection of a person, every brand whether you do it on purpose or it happens. So in this instance, we said, okay, if we're going to create a brand where they might not meet the person, but we want to be helpful, then who is helpful to us in life? Who delights us? And after about a month or so of reflection, our team decided we narrowed it down to a number of people in the service industry, and then we went and observed them. And then another month, we came back and we said, okay, the absolute pinnacle of the person who delights us is either the bellman or the concierge of a boutique hotel. So what do they do that delights us? Oh, they greet us. So they know who we are. Yeah. Okay. Write that down. Amazon has to remember who comes to the website. No double entry of data, single time. What else? They make recommendations. Okay. Write that down. They get things for us. You know, like if if you show up and the Wall Street Journal isn't there, they go get it. So they do things for you dynamically. So by creating a persona of a person who delights us in service, we created about 15 to 18 attributes of that persona. And that's what we delivered to Jeff. And we said, can you design, build, and code the website? And can you accept these type of values so that this becomes your brand persona? And he said, yes. And that's still the persona today. You get something from Amazon, you don't like it. What do you do? You ship it back. They take it back. No questions asked. I mean, I find that fascinating. And so your business has a brand persona. Just think of it as a person. So if you haven't created one on purpose, then it has one by default. You can create one on purpose and then train your employees and everyone else to adopt those values and those behaviors. I've never heard it put together that well. (laughs) That's excellent. Great example, too. Really appreciate that. Well, Byrne, thank you for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and insights. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I have written every one of my three books to give something to small business owners and entrepreneurs and marketers that they may not necessarily easily find. These books are not autobiographies. 
the books I've written on entrepreneurship, creativity, and marketing is giving away everything I've learned in my 20-year career in these areas. And I give away all the tools, all the frameworks, all the processes of what we used to do with both startups and multi-billion dollar companies so that I could impact someone that I would never meet. So I guess in closing, if someone doesn't understand how they can make their small business more powerful, they should read Brands and BS, not because I wrote it and not because I'm an author, but because they should care enough about trying to move their business forward in what's becoming a very competitive environment. And so I've really written my books to impact people that I personally believe I will never meet. I've almost become the cathartic representation of Amazon. (laughs) Our guest today has been Bernard Schroeder. You can learn more about Bern, as well as find links to his new book and his website, all in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. This episode has been sponsored by Line for Business, provider of business consulting and executive coaching. That's Align, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.